One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. This interview was recorded in 2013. My guest is Elizabeth Strout, author of four novels, including Amy and Isabel, Abide With Me, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Olive Kittredge, and the newly released The Burgess Boys. Elizabeth Strout grew up in Maine and New Hampshire, has an English degree from Bates College and a law degree from Syracuse University. She lives in New York City. We began our discussion with Elizabeth choosing a passage to read from her new novel, The Burgess Boys, which tells the story of two brothers that grew up under the cloud of a family tragedy in Maine. Both moved to New York to become lawyers and are called back to their hometown when their sister's son perpetrates a hate crime. He threw a pig's head into a mosque. Elizabeth says this was a passage that was hard to write. It's the first passage where Bob Burgess, a central character, appears in the book. The autumn clouds, magnificent in their variegated darkness, were being spread apart by the wind, and great streaks of sunshine splashed down on the buildings on 7th Avenue. This is where the Chinese restaurants were, the card shops, the jewelry shops, the grocers with the fruits and vegetables and rows of cut flowers. Bob Burgess walked past all these, up the sidewalk in the direction of his brother's house. Bob was a tall man, 51 years old, and here was the thing about Bob. He was a likable fellow. To be with Bob made people feel as if they were inside a small circle of usness. If Bob had known this about himself, his life might have been different. But he didn't know it, and his heart was often touched by an undefined fear. Also, he wasn't consistent. Friends agreed that you could have a great time with him, and then you'd see him again, and he'd be vacant. This part Bob knew, because his former wife had told him. Pam said he went away in his head. Jim gets like that, too, Bob had offered. We're not talking about Jim, she had said. And so did you feel like that you finally got into it and were able to sort of get the energy of him with that paragraph? Yes, particularly, you know, the, the, the 
starting with the, you know, Bob was a tall man, 51 years old, and here was the thing he was likable because as I thought through, I thought, well, I don't need to beat around the bush here. I mean, Bob, Bob is tall. He's 51. Let the reader know that. And he's likable, and he doesn't necessarily know this about himself. So it was just, it was kind of freeing, which is what often happens when I, you know, stop sort of diddling around and I think, I'll just, we'll just say it. <laughs> well, I read that you um, took seven years to write and research this story, and you actually plucked the brothers from a different story. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if that happens a lot, that you have these appendage characters and something you wrote that never made it, and all of a sudden you realize they need to be the stars of the next show. Yeah, it it does happen frequently, and well, frequently. I mean, you know, I don't I don't write that many books because it takes me so long. But it's but by you know, I actually forget that um, until I'm going through old papers to throw out things, and I and I see old drafts, and that's what happened in this case. Like I was throwing out some old drafts of. Um, the story, you know, um, Abide With Me, the story of the minister, Tyler Kasky. And I looked and I thought, oh, look at this. I've got the Burgess kids in the backyard, you know, in the back of their back of the car, you know, as little kids with their mother having driven over to Tyler Kasky's house because her husband had just died. And obviously I had, you know, and then I remembered it, of course, many years ago I had been trying to put these two stories together and, and then at some point made the decision that it was, you know, Tyler's story. And then, obviously, the Burgess boys didn't go away in my head and became their own book. This story has a prologue, and and it's interesting. The prologue is told from first person, and it's a woman who used to live in the town with these boys, and Mm -hmm. she's talking to her mother on the phone. What was your decision to put that prologue in and, and both, you know, I guess, maybe emotionally for your story, but also craft wise? I was just initially fooling around with it, you know, just, just, you know, writing different scenes, and and it, and I just thought, you know, let me let me just write a prologue. Honestly, it was more of an exercise um, to just see what would happen because I'm not a person who generally writes prologues, and I'm not a person that generally uh, switches from a first person narration to a third person narration. So, um, on both those fronts, it was quite different for me, and I just. But I was I was just sort of doing it. I I think that what happened was I was I was mulling over in my mind, you know, the this this book, and I thought how my mother and I very often, and it's it's this is the narrator in that prologue is not Elizabeth Stroud. It's a it's a fictitious um, character, but but in real life, my mother and I do frequently still talk about, oh, I, you know, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. And, you know, my best friend from third grade, when we get together, we do that. And I think that's not um, uncommon for people, you know, as they get older to say, oh, did, you know, do you remember these people and what happened and do you remember this? And so I liked that kind of sense of storytelling, like, okay, okay, let me tell you a story, readers, and here's how I'm going to do that. I'm going to you know, tell you right up front, this fictional narrator is going to tell you that this is a reminiscence. And the mother says, well, nobody knows anybody. And I thought that was intriguing because I I sort of believed that myself and that, you know, it kind of gave an excuse to go ahead and then write a book of fiction, even though the prologue was also fiction. So I I tucked it away. Um, You know, I worked on it a bit and tucked it away. And I thought, you know, I probably won't use that. And the more I uh, continued with the book, I thought, no, there's a lot, there's a lot here. Um, there's some news there, you know, it, it gives you 
news that I think people forget by the end of the book, but that's okay because it's been situated in their mind already. And also the, the tone of just storytelling was very appealing to me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth Strout, author of The Burgess Boys, Olive Kittredge, and Amy and Isabel, among others. You had mentioned that, you know, one of the things that was in there and that you've thought about before is that you don't really ever know people. And I'm wondering if that's why you write. Well, it certainly is a part of it. Yes, it is. Um, I have always been intrigued by what we don't know about people. I mean, from, you know, I can, I can remember this as a young child, wondering what people's houses looked like inside and, you know, what their, what their, what their lives were like and what they thought about if they woke up in the middle of the night. And honestly, that's just never gone away. (laughs) So um, I I think it's a big part of why I write because I, I just find people so interesting and, and so, um, you know, I have to kind of make up what I don't know. And what about um, translating on the page for this book, A True Incident? I mean, this book was based yeah. on a true incident in Lewiston, Maine. That's and, right. And how, what was that experience like for you in terms of research and taking the real world and maybe yeah. making a line with the fictional world? Yeah, it's, that's the first time I've done that. Um, I... I Usually, you know, collect all my life's experiences and, and, and all that stuff that fiction writers do. But this was the first time that I really did base something on an actual incident. And it was, it was, um, it was kind of great in a, in a way because I, I became fascinated. The minute I heard of that incident, I just thought, oh, wow. Um, think of the multitude of different points of views that are involved in something like that. And, and I read... I read everything about it, um, and, you know, years ago I did go to law school, so I had some interest in it from a legal point of view as well, and also from a personal standpoint, I, I felt it was just so sad and, and, and distressing that the Somali community had to have this happen to them. But as a fiction writer, like I'm always, I was always telling my students, write against the grain, and so you know, not not to take the point of view that's the easiest. And so for me, as a person, Elizabeth Stroud, you know, I, I, I just would automatically think this is just so terrible and, and that's that. And then, but as a fiction writer, I thought, okay, so let's make the, the um, perpetrator somebody that is um, interesting and not just, um, you know, like a bad person. And, and as I researched the case, um, it was actually done by a man older than than my character Zachary, and um, and I became very sort of attached to him in the sense of you know reading about him. And he committed suicide a week before it was to go to trial, and I was I was quite affected by that. Um, so I did tons of research, and then I thought, well, I'm, I'll make this I'll make my character younger and uh, le- you know sort of less knowing, you know, not quite understanding even what he had done. Or the, or the depth of what he had done. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever feel the pressure of time? I, you've mentioned that you're a slow writer, and I, I don't know anything about really how the publishing industry works, but do you feel like you have time to write what you need to write, or is it some balance? Well, I always um, think that I'll be faster the next time. <laughs> you know, I always think, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I've written longer, I've written more, you know, more years have gone by with my working, so maybe I'll know how to get to the point faster. So I always sort of optimistic thinking that I can write more quickly, but it seems that I can't, and, um, or at least so far, I haven't particularly been able to. Um, I don't at this point feel a pressure um, except except for myself, because, you know, there's still stuff I want to say <laughs> and figure out how to how to do that. You know, every writer has to kind of figure out how many books do we have in us, um, or at least I think I think in that term, I think in those terms. I have read that you sometimes will write a hundred pages and get one. You know, in the end, after you've written those hundred pages, you get sure. one. It, yeah. Have you just accepted that as part of your process, or is that frustrating? No, I've accepted it. I actually, um, I don't mind that so much because I'm, you know, um, it, it's just what I do. It's how I, it's how I do it. Um, I think I minded it much more earlier on when I didn't have the confidence that I would get that page ultimately. But now I understand that, you know, I, I will eventually, I'll, I'll get it eventually. Um, or if I don't, then it's not what I want to be. It's not really what I need to be writing. So, um, so I don't, I don't see that as as anything more than just a part of my job. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth Strout, author of The Burgess Boys, Olive Kittredge, and Amy and Isabel, among others. Well, you did start writing it as at a very young age, but it wasn't the path that you took, at least with your education. As you mentioned, mm. you have a law degree. <laughs> I know. And so how did that percolate in your life to the point where you knew that this was what you had to do? Well, yeah, I knew that I always wanted to be a writer. And so um, and I was writing stories and sending them out probably from the age of 16 or 17. And of course, you know, not not getting anything, and um, not even a nibble and stuff like that. And and so um, eventually, um, I, you know, a couple years out of law, uh, a couple years out of college, and and just taking different, you know, multitude of different jobs in writing stories. I 
I, I really did get a little discouraged about that, and I thought, well, you know, here's this thing, life, you know, and, and, and adulthood, and what am I going to do? And I, I did have an interest in, in social issues and stuff like that, and I had the misunderstanding that I could be a lawyer. That, first of all, that was a misunderstanding with myself. And second of all, that um, I could be a lawyer and write on the side, and I guess some people have done that, but um, but I was a very bad lawyer, and I also you know, couldn't write on the side. So, but going to law school, um, for years I kept thinking, boy, that was a mistake, but you know, it wasn't, it helped, it helped the way I thought it wasn't a mistake. It's, it's, um, taken me a long time to realize that, you know, it, it wasn't so, um, but I was, I was just trying to figure out how to support myself as a writer. I mean, every writer has to figure that one out. It's not just a hobby, which I always knew it wasn't a hobby, but people sort of treat it like it's a hobby. You know, if you're young and you say, well, you want to be a writer, it's like, oh, well, she's interested in writing. So that's kind of a dangerous thing to say to people but um, because they don't, they don't get it. So you have to, but then you, you know, there's that final moment where you just say, well, I've got to go, I've got to go for this. Um, I read, I think it might even be on your website, that when you wrote your first, your first book, you didn't tell anyone you were writing it except your husband? Yeah. What was that about? Well, it was about, um, it was about the fact that, you know, I've been writing for a long time, and very little was really happening. I mean, I did have a few stories published, but I, I just didn't have the sense that anybody um, in either family, my, my in-laws or my own family, in spite of my mother having been so encouraging, I think that uh, it just was so important to me. It was so important to me to be a writer and to be a good writer. And and the way, you know, if I said to people, please don't call me in the morning or something like that, you know, that I just don't, I just felt like it was not uh, respected, you know, that so I just stopped telling people. I just stopped telling people. And it gave me some freedom to just go ahead and, you know, my daughter knew, obviously. She was, you know, a little girl, and she grew up with all these manuscripts, you know, on her on the table, breakfast table, eating her cereal off these manuscripts. And she was, you know, but, uh, but I, yeah, no, I didn't, I just thought I should just do my work with my head down. Did you feel by not telling anyone to relieve some pressure? It did, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was private, and it's always a private experience you know, between you and the page and you and your imagined reader. Um, you know, there's the, it is so popular now. You, you've even taught um, writing, but it is so popular for people to get an MFA, and you were sort of going at it alone for a really yeah. long time without yeah. maybe support or feedback. Yeah. Um, how did you get through some of the most difficult times? You know, it was it was hard. It. I'm not, I'm not going to... Um, lie about that at all it was it was really hard there's nothing romantic about it um i used to keep the rejection slips from for some perverse reason i guess also just to you know keep track of where i'd sent things and when i finally finally got amy and isabel published um i remember i found the box of rejection slips a huge box of them in the basement and i thought oh well now i can look at these and they won't um affect me but but they did. And I just threw them all out. I just threw them out. And I thought, okay, that's it. You know, cause, um, it was, it was really hard. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to give this up. I'm going to have to, to become a nurse or, or, or find some other job because it's just, it's just not happening. 
and and the pain, you know, it was just so painful. And and each, yeah, I think I think there were twice I sort of kind of really did think that I would make some other use of my life. And then after a month or a few weeks, I would think, oh, well, maybe if I try the story this way, you know. So I I never could, I couldn't stay away from it. Um, so that's really the answer is I just I just couldn't stay away from it. I just wanted to keep trying it again. Did you think what you were writing in the beginning was good or did you were you able to see well maybe this could be better? Excellent question. I knew it wasn't good. Uh I I knew it wasn't good or good enough and um that was very frustrating for me. Um I I under I I feel like I had a pretty clear sense of of my work in in a certain way and and um you know the the stories that did get published I thought okay they're they're okay they're adequate it's okay that they're that they're published they're nothing to be ashamed of but um it really wasn't until I was probably well into Amy and Isabel that I began to feel wow I learned it now I can I I just felt like like learning to ride a bicycle I felt like I was finally making the sentences that I'd been training for so long to do and so that was very exciting and then it was tremendously depressing to have all the agents that I sent it to just reject it outright Um, that was difficult because I actually did believe in that book (laughs) so so that was even harder than a rejection when I thought well maybe the story isn't quite as good as it should be you're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth Strout, author of The Burgess Boys, Olive Kittredge, and Amy and Isabel, among others. Let's talk a little bit about Olive Kittredge. Did you know when you began that this was going to be a portrait of the of a person in linked stories? Yeah, I did. Um, again, one of those strange and and, uh, you know, surprising sort of gifts of like, oh, okay, that part, you know, decided. I did. I understood right away um, that that I was going to write a book of, of short stories um, about this character, Olive Kittredge, and I, and I knew that they'd be stories. And what about Olive just brought you to the page again and again? She was very um, vivid. You know, a character like that is, a lot of fun to to write as opposed to um, Tyler Kasky, the minister in Abide With Me, or even Bob Burgess. I mean, people who are just kind of, you know, fundamentally decent. I mean, not that I think Olive is fundamentally decent, but her personality is so large and so abrasive that it's, it's actually um, very compelling to return to the page with her. Is it hard when you have a character that, that that is that emotionally complex and has so many sides to her personality to know, like, how to tone it down ever? Two things about that question. One, um, in terms of the whole book, I, I did think I, I've got to keep her a little toned down here because she's just so so large. And so I, that's one reason that I would um, go off into another section of town and bring forth um, another character to the front of the stage and, and let Olive recede, sort of to give the reader a rest and also to round out the environment that she lived in. But but oddly, it was the other problem that I had more with Olive, which was to allow her to be as abrasive as she 
was because sometimes um, I would find myself writing a, 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 about her and I would think, oh, I don't know that I want, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty harsh, you know, what she's doing there or what she's saying. And then I would think to myself, you know, look, let her, let her, let her be olive, let her rip. There's no point in writing this if you don't let her be olive. So, so in fact, I had to fight the urge to make her more palatable. <laughs> and so you don't really like to speak in public from what I understand, but you did stand-up comedy, so I'm curious oh. about that. <laughs> what, oh, tell me I about that. Died. Um, yeah, I do have, I have a, I, I, I do have like, you know, issues, as I say, with, with stage fright. Um, although I've, I've, I've gotten better. I think I, I think I've finally gotten better, but you never know when it will come up and, you know, just hit you over the head. But the stand-up comedy thing, that, that was just absolutely terrifying. And I, I did that many, many years ago because I thought that, um, I just was interested in comedy and I thought, you know, it would help me figure out what I wasn't being truthful about. You know, like I kept thinking, well, the writing isn't as good as it should be. And so what am I lying about or what am I staying away from? And I just, you know, I couldn't figure it out. And I thought, well, let me try a stand-up comedy class. And, you know, and my instincts were right. It did, it did help me, but it was absolutely terrifying. Um, I I just want to make that clear. (laughs) It was, it was really scary. So you, you wouldn't do it again. Oh my God. No, never. I think it's interesting, though, because I think the intersection between being a writer and being an actor is is very close because you're basically trying to get in the heads of other people. Exactly. And so what what were some of the more profound lessons from doing the stand up? Well, it's also um, if it's it's also, you know, it's getting into the head um, of a character, you know, when you're acting. But it's also the relationship to your audience. And that's what's so interesting um, is that they're right. They're right there. You know, a writer, you know, we work alone and, you know, we just sort of, you know, we we write this stuff down in notebooks. And and so the the immediacy of the relationship um, can get lost. And when you're responsible for a room full of people who have paid money to come in and laugh, there's nothing more immediate than that, you know. So you'd better deliver something that's pretty truthful or pretty, you know, you have to, you have to show some part of yourself. You have to strip away something to, to make it happen. Um, And that is what I really learned, which is, you know, go ahead and, and take those risks. And, and, and I also um, found it, you know, once I survived the experience, I found it interesting that um, what, what my routine consisted of was making fun of myself as a, you know, a very white Puritan woman from New England, um, which I honestly never fully understood that that's what I was until, until I started to, you know, come up with my routine. And then, you know, I'd been living in New York for a long time, and I just sort of hadn't realized how much that informed, you know, who, who I am. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth Strout, author of The Burgess Boys, Olive Kittredge, and Amy and Isabel, among others. What about the role of religion? It seems to come up in your work a lot. Yeah. Um, what's, what is that for you? Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, actually. 
Um, I, I don't know. I was, I, was in, I was always interested in how people gave expression to the incomprehensible. And so it seemed to me that parts of religion or the impulse for religion was, was trying to find a language for something that, that ordinary language couldn't encompass. I, th- I think that's really what was at, you know, what's been at the bottom of my, my interest in religion. One of the things I asked you to do is if you could maybe read a passage from something that influenced you by someone else. I chose um, the very beginning of On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwan. They were young, educated, and both virgins on this, their wedding night, and they lived in a time when a conversation about sexual difficulties was plainly impossible, but it is never easy. They had just sat down to supper in a tiny sitting room on the first floor of a Georgian inn. In the next room, visible through the open door, was a four-poster bed, rather narrow, whose bed cover was pure white and stretched startlingly smooth, as though by no human hand. Edward did not mention that he had never stayed in a hotel before, whereas Florence, after many trips as a child with her father, was an old hand. Superficially, they were in fine spirits. Why did you choose that? I, I love the directness of it and the um, immediate, uh, you know, there's there's no beating around the bush. It's just so simple and beautiful. And I also love, um, the. I guess it's the very second line, after, you know, the first line, they lived in a time when conversation about sexual difficulties was plainly impossible. And then the next line, the very next line is, but it is never easy, which which is so great to me because it kind of brings it into for a moment there just brings it right into whatever contemporary, you know, whatever time the reader is reading this or contemporary times, you know, as opposed to starting out back, back in the day when things were, you know, it's impossible to talk about sexual difficulties and then just jumps right into um, a conversational tone, but it is never easy. And it goes right back to setting the scene again. They had just sat down to supper and, you know, the view of the bed, you know, as, they, as they're eating this supper and they, you know, viewing this bed through the door, which is, you know, sort of narrow. And um, I, I, just, I just thought it was wonderful and um, simple and, and sort of straightforward and nothing particularly showing off about it or anything. I just love the straightforwardness of it, the beauty of it. Where do you write? I honestly uh, can write anywhere. I don't want somebody who knows me well very close by because then I feel that there's going to, you know, there might be a need. So, I mean, I'd like to say that I need to be alone, but I don't need to be alone as long as I'm among strangers. You know, I can write on the subway. I can write in a coffee shop. I do generally write alone, but I really can write anywhere. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I usually go to people because, you know, it's such a solitary thing. So, um, like, you know, my favorite thing when I'm, you know, done for the day is to um, to talk because, <laughs> you know, I just spend so much time in, in silence. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have uh, been blessed with the most wonderful friend um, that I met 30 years ago when I first moved to New York City, and she has been my first reader for for 30 years, and she's really my only my only first reader, my only reader. You have to trust somebody, you know. It's very, very tricky if you show your work, you know, when it's still wet behind the ears to somebody. It's very, 
very, very important relationship um, because you, you're, you're going to believe them. If they like it, you're actually going to believe it. And if they don't like it, you're going to believe that. So you have, to, you have to really trust them. And you also have to know that they could be wrong. <laughs> um, you did talk about this a little, but how do you deal with rejection? Yeah, it hurts. It just hurts. Um, and you, I deal with rejection the way you deal, you know, I deal with anything unpleasant in life. You just, you know, you you just feel bad and 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 awful, and then it, you know, it goes away. What is your favorite word? Quotidian. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Elizabeth Strout author of The Burgess Boys, Amy and Isabel, and Olive Kittredge, among others. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.